0: Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Colonialism and utopianism, as Thomas More coined the term, have been linked since the early 16th century, when European explorers began taking stock of newly accessible lands that would later become colonies. Colonists had the expectation of achieving a much better life by settling in quote-unquote new lands while producing a dystopia for the original inhabitants. Optimistic colonists didn't always find what they expected, but for centuries they continued to emigrate and settle, driven by utopian projections of what their new lives would be like. Today we talk about one of the first colonies in the New World and how it all went wrong. The Roanoke Colony was England's first attempt to establish a permanent colony in North America. First established in 1585 in what is now North Carolina, it was soon abandoned, but then resettled two years later in 1587. The first group of tragically optimistic colonists were naive and disrespectful of their new environment, engaged in incredibly unwise conflicts with the people who already inhabited the region, lacked competent basic logistical planning, and, in a phrase, were doomed to fail the second group of similarly ill-prepared Roanoke colonists were left on their own for an alarmingly long time, while resupply ships were delayed by almost three years due to the very understandable distraction of the Spanish Armada. By the time English ships arrived back in Roanoke colony in 1590, there was no trace of the colonists, except one word carved on a tree trunk, Croatoan. 400 years later, the mystery remains. What the hell happened at the lost colony of Roanoke? By the 1580s, the European race was well underway to trade with, colonize, and pillage West Africa and the Americas. England had fallen somewhat behind the Spanish and Portuguese in this unsavory competition to colonize newly discovered parts of the world. Queen Elizabeth I of England had contented herself to fund privateers, which were privately owned and manned ships commissioned by the English government to attack enemy ships to rob Spanish ships laden with loot from the Americas heading back to Europe. But in 1584, Sir Walter Raleigh finally convinced the Queen to attempt a settlement of colonists in today's North Carolina. Sir Walter Raleigh was an English nobleman, explorer, and writer who masterminded much of British colonization of North America. Later in life, he fell out of favor with Queen Elizabeth I's successor, King James I, and found himself imprisoned in the Tower of London and executed, like so many of England's colorful historical figures. But here in the 1580s, he happened to be a favorite of the Queen, so he had her ear. She extended a six-year patent to establish a New World colony where the settlers would have the rights of English citizens. Raleigh honored the Queen by pledging to name the region Virginia, a nod to Elizabeth's nickname, the Virgin Queen. The purpose of establishing a permanent colony in this region on the coast of North America would be, first and foremost, to gain wealth for the crown by attacking and stealing cargo from Spanish ships and mining for silver and gold. But at the time, European explorers also sought the elusive Northwest Passage, a water route westward from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, and a settlement here on the east coast would be a good jumping-off point to search for it. The Northwest Passage was a treacherous and deadly maritime challenge that stymied explorers and claimed many sailors' lives and wouldn't actually be conquered until centuries later in 1905. In fact, Sir Walter Raleigh's half brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, drowned in a Northwest Passage attempt across the Arctic in 1583, just one year before the first expedition to Roanoke Island in 1584. And lastly, the English wished to put their new colony to use to convert indigenous peoples in the Americas to Christianity. As if any of us needed a reminder of just how messed up the colonial period was, The letter's patent granting authority for the Roanoke expeditions read in part, Discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince and inhabited by Christian people, and to hold, occupy, and enjoy forever all the soil of all such lands, countries, and territories so to be discovered or possessed. In other words, to occupy and exploit the resources of any land they could step foot on that wasn't already inhabited by white European Christians. So in 1584, an expedition to scout a location for a permanent English colony in North America set out with the Queen's blessing. This expedition is sometimes called the Amadas Barlow Expedition, after its two leaders. Sir Walter Raleigh himself was sponsoring the trip, but remained in England. The men of this expedition explored the region and made contact with Indians whose main settlement was on Roanoke Island. Their initial interactions were friendly and they traded commodities like cloth and wine for meat, fish, and animal skins. The local chief, Wingina, hosted the visitors for a feast. Somehow, in the course of their interactions, it was decided that two important Roanoke Indians would accompany the explorers back to England. Mantio and Wanchise. Wanchise was an important visor to Wingina, and Mantio was the son of the Croatoan Indians chief. Back in England, Amadas and Barlow described Virginia as a land of prosperity, teeming with forests and wild game, and peaceful natives willing to trade and show them locations for mining vast deposits of the riches they so coveted. All this was enough to convince Raleigh and the Queen that this spot they'd found might be a good candidate for England to establish its first permanent colony. Meanwhile, Raleigh was hosting Wanchise and Mantio at Durham House in London, which was a mansion on the Thames River that was granted to Raleigh by the Queen. I can only imagine the culture shock they must have experienced at being transplanted to high society London, where they made quite a stir at the royal court. During their stay in London, they were also learning English and teaching the mathematician Thomas Harriet, who'd been along on the original expedition as a navigator and mapmaker, their Algonquin language. And of course, they wanted to investigate the English and what their arrival might mean through the lens of their people's own understanding of the world and report back on returning home. Now, you might think this cultural exchange could have been the start of a beautiful friendship or at the very least, a mutual respect between the Roanoke Indians and the English explorers. But no, Walter Raleigh continued to champion English colonization in the Americas up until his death, and conflict between Roanoke colonists and native people would ultimately be one of the major contributors to the downfall of the colony, not once, but both times. After returning to Roanoke, Manteo seemed to continue to be an ally to the colonists, but Wanchese never did trust the English, didn't show much interest in learning to speak English, and upon returning back to Roanoke, severed his relations with them and adopted an attitude of resistance toward the newcomers, which in hindsight certainly seems the prescient move given what was to come. In 1585, the English privateer and adventurer Richard Grenville, also cousin to Walter Raleigh, sailed back to the newly christened Virginia in command of a small fleet carrying about 600 colonists, mostly soldiers and some craftsmen like carpenters and smiths, plus Cheese and Mantio returning home. Elizabeth had provided the expedition not only with her blessing, but also with the 160-ton ship Tiger. The fleet also included four smaller ships. The voyage left Plymouth in April 1585 and quickly ran into trouble. Several weeks into the journey, a storm separated the fleet, and the Tiger blew far off course, ending up in Puerto Rico. But the intrepid and experienced privateer Grenville turned this misfortune to his advantage, taking the opportunity to plunder several Spanish ships and ports in the Caribbean while passing through. After all, the number one reason for establishing the colony in the first place was to create a home base for English backed privateers to attack Spanish ships. Eventually, all of the ships were able to regroup in Hispaniola in the West Indies and then make their way into the Carolina Outer Banks, home to Roanoke Island. But not before the Tiger ran aground, not sinking, but taking on enough seawater to ruin most of their stores and supplies including the colonists' food. Because the large ships couldn't navigate through the shallow outer banks to reach the mainland, and due to the loss of so many provisions, a group of just 107 settlers of the 600 who'd initially set out were left on Wocoken Island under the charge of Ralph Lane. Grenville departed to sail back to England for more supplies and in the meantime, Lane moved the settlement to the north end of Roanoke Island, which was nearby. Lane was left with the smallest vessel of the fleet, which was nimble enough to navigate the islands of the Outer Banks and explore the region a bit. The settlers were short on food, partly because of the mishap with the Tiger, but thankfully, Mantio and Wanchise were willing to act as mediaries to facilitate some trade between the settlers and the Roanoke Indians early on. The Indians also told them about gold and copper deposits to the north, which led Lane to explore up to the Chesapeake Bay. As winter wore on, food supplies were getting desperately low for the settlers, who hadn't arrived in time to plant any crops the summer before, not that they knew how, and Lane proved to be damnably poor at relations with the locals, The Indians in the area were either unwilling or unable to spare extra food for the English, and the situation became ever more hostile. By now, the newcomers were spreading new diseases to the native population, and while some of the Indians might initially have interpreted the Europeans as having godlike qualities on their arrival... Others, now including Chief Wingina, concluded that they were certainly no more able to control weather disasters and food shortages than the Algonquin gods, and would best be dealt with by driving them away or eliminating them, before they could continue spreading their pestilence and demanding a share of their food stores. The colonists did survive the winter and spring, but by June, Mantio warned Lane that the Indians planned to attack the colony. So Lane struck first in a raid that killed Chief Wingina. Fortunately for the colonists, before the Indians retaliated, help would arrive within a couple of days when a large fleet was spotted off the coast, and it fortuitously turned out to be none other than Sir Francis Drake, one of England's most famous explorers, privateers, and slave traders. He'd just completed his circumnavigation of the globe a few years earlier in 1580. When he came upon the Roanoke colonists in their sticky situation, he was returning from several months at sea looting Spanish ships in the West Indies. He agreed to help Lane find a more suitable location for the colony. As a fellow privateer, it suited his ambitions as well to have a permanent English base in North America. However, their plan was over before it began, when a strong hurricane approached. Prompting the fleet to head for England instead, taking the Roanoke colonists with them. Lane never returned to North America and died in 1603, several years after being injured in the Irish Rebellion. But with his last act in inciting the murder of the chief Wingina, he effectively poisoned the waters for any future colonists who might follow and try to settle in the region. But in the meantime, remember that Richard Grenville had sailed for England for supplies and was returning with the expectation that the colonists would be there waiting when he got back. So the next summer, he returned with provisions for the colony, but Lane and the other hundred or so men had already left and sailed back to England with Sir Francis Drake. Grenville had missed them by just a few weeks he ended up leaving 15 new men with two years of supplies with the idea that they could hold out here, maintaining Raleigh's claim on Roanoke Island until another batch of colonists might come from England. But these 15 men were never seen again. So in spite of the ill-fated first attempt at a colony on Roanoke Island, the dream was still alive back in England as was the insatiable desire for riches from the new world, including gold, silver, copper, pearls, furs, tobacco, and potatoes. (laughs) So Raleigh organized yet another expedition. This time they planned to sail a bit further north into the Chesapeake Bay area, where they hoped the native population might be a bit friendlier, since Lane and his colonists hadn't just finished murdering their chief. In 1587, the third and final of Sir Walter Raleigh's expeditions to Virginia set out. And in July, John White, an explorer, artist, and cartographer who'd been on the original Roanoke expedition, was enlisted to be the colony's governor, presiding over the 117 other settlers, 89 men, 17 women, and 11 children. Their plan assumed that the Queen of England owned the land, as indigenous peoples were not taken into consideration, and thus she could bestow 500 acres of land to each man. This group of colonists was quite different to the last, which had been comprised mostly of soldiers. These were middle-class people and families from London, including some of Sir Walter Raleigh's friends and associates, and people who wanted to escape what they thought of as the filth and disease of 16th century London, and sought to become landowners, where, from their point of view, it was free for the taking. What the expedition seemed to lack were people who knew what they were doing, like how to grow food and survive in their new environment. The plan was to sail to the Chesapeake Bay area to find a new site and establish a colony called the City of Virginia, But first they would make a stopover at Roanoke Island to check on those 15 men that Grenville had left there with supplies to hold a claim on the island. Of course, these men were nowhere to be found. As John White later wrote, We found none of them nor any sign that they had been there, saving only we found the bones of one of those 15, which the savages had slain long before. I suppose it wouldn't be too surprising if they had all been killed, considering what had gone down with Lane's men just before they'd been dropped off at Roanoke. But it's also possible some of them survived, found a way to leave the island, and who knows what could have happened to them from there. I'd actually never heard of these 15 men before, so I was surprised to learn that the mystery of the lost Roanoke colony is sort of a double mystery. But for the 118 colonists just arriving in 1587, events were about to take an unexpected turn that may have sealed their fate. After disembarking at Roanoke Island to search for Grenville's 15 men, the pilot of their ship, the Lion, indicated that they were not to reboard and that instead of carrying on to Chesapeake Bay as agreed, the colonists would be left at Roanoke Island. If only they had made it to Chesapeake Bay as planned, I think it's possible that they would have succeeded, and the city of Virginia would have been the first English colony in America, not Jamestown. The reason for this calamity is a bit of a mystery in and of itself. In his later writings, John White attributes this to the ship's pilot, Simon Fernandez, claiming that it was getting late in the summer and that he'd run out of time, so they must get off here at Roanoke. White writes simply that he didn't want to argue with the pilot, so he complied. This doesn't make much sense, as White was the governor of the colony, appointed by Raleigh. Fernandez was just the pilot hired to sail them where they wanted to go. Fernandez was a pirate, he would have preferred to head south to loot ships and ports rather than go sailing into northern waterways, but he must have known he would be dooming the colonists by leaving them at Roanoke especially after they'd just found someone's bones. Some historians make the argument that this situation can only make sense if White and Fernandez mutually agreed to the change of plans, and that White's written account blaming Fernandez later was meant to deflect Raleigh's anger at him, White, for disobeying his specific instruction to settle at Chesapeake Bay. But why would White want to try to resettle at Roanoke Island? He'd been there on a previous expedition and presumably knew the extreme peril he and the other colonists, including women and children this time, would be in if they encroached yet again on the Roanoke Indians. Regardless of the reason, somehow the colonists ended up on Roanoke Island in July 1587. Of course, the Roanoke Indians had not forgotten their recent deadly conflict with the English, and a colonist named George Howe was found dead on the beach just days after their arrival. Given the colonists' woeful inability to provide for themselves and hopeless prospects for local trade because of the ongoing animosities, just one month later in August, White had to return to England in order to persuade the English government to send the colony urgently needed supplies. After all, any future resupply ships would be looking for the colony at Chesapeake Bay, not Roanoke Island. So if they were to have any hope of future aid, he would have to go in person. This meant leaving behind his daughter and son-in-law, and his infant granddaughter, Virginia Dare, the first English colonist to be born in the Americas. White made it back to England, but before he could return to Roanoke, the Spanish Armada attacked England. Queen Elizabeth ordered a stay of shipping on English shores, and no expedition back to Roanoke would be possible until years later. White was finally able to arrange passage back to Roanoke Island with the help of Sir Walter Raleigh three years later, in 1590. When he arrived back in the colony in August that year, there was no trace of the colonists except one word carved onto a tree trunk, Croatoan. Or, in some accounts, Croatoan is carved on a fence post and the letters C-R-O on a tree. To this day, there is no definitive explanation for what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. But there are several plausible theories. And for starters, it may not be as mysterious as it seems. In many accounts of the Roanoke story, this carving of the word Croatoan is represented as some mystery word or even nonsense word. Of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. The meaning would have been plain to anyone in the region at the time, and indeed it was to John White. It was the name of an island about 50 miles away, and the Croatoan Indians who inhabited it. In fact, this was the home of Mantio, the colonist's only remaining Native American friend. So perhaps the explanation is simple. In fact, given that Roanoke Island hadn't been the planned location for the colony, moving had been discussed. And before White departed to England, he told the colonists that if they did move, to leave word by carving on a tree, and that if their move was made under duress, that the carving should include a Maltese cross. Given the Croatoan carving pointed him to a specific place not far away, and there was no Maltese cross, White had hoped that his daughter and granddaughter were alive and well, and made plans to sail to Croatoan Island and look for the colonists. But in yet another stroke of terrible luck, the ship on which he was traveling was damaged in a storm and driven far out to sea, and couldn't get to the island. Instead, sailing on and returning to England. White was never able to return to search for the lost colonists again. Ultimately, there is no evidence of whether or not any of the Roanoke settlers ever went to Croatoan Island, which today is called Hatteras Island. More recently, some artifacts have been found on the island that date to late 16th-century Europe but can't definitively be linked to the Roanoke colonists. After all, the colonists did trade with the Indians before things went sideways, and Spanish treasure ships and privateer ships sailed up and down this coast all the time. The artifacts are interesting, but not a smoking gun. One hole in the Croatoan theory is that it seems unlikely any of the native tribes or villages would have been willing or able to take in over 100 colonists. They just wouldn't have been able to support that many people. Another theory with some possible evidence behind it is the X and Y sites. Discovered hidden on a 16th century map made by John White, the two sites both had fort symbols drawn next to them, which may indicate that colonists were aware of the locations and had hoped to build forts there sometime in the future. The sites have been investigated by archaeologists with the First Colony Foundation, And they've discovered a few artifacts, but again, nothing that could be definitively linked to Roanoke. Some historians posit that it is more likely that the colonists were all killed by Native Americans in revenge for the 1585 violence against them, or because they wanted to put a stop to the repeated encroachments by the Europeans. Still others say the colonists may have been wiped out by disease. England was also at war with the Spaniards, who were sick and tired of their ships being looted by privateers. If they discovered an English colony in North America, they may have killed the settlers. And of course, there may have been overlapping factors. A crisis caused by disease, hunger, or violence could have caused the group to break up with smaller factions taking their chances in different areas and perhaps trying to integrate with different groups of indigenous people throughout the region for survival, or perhaps being killed by them. Some may have gone south to Croatoan, while others headed inland or even north toward their original destination of Chesapeake Bay. And finally, the Some have even proposed that the colonists might have desperately tried to set sail on a small ship back to England and were all lost at sea. English colonists were back in North America in 1607, and the Jamestown colonists did try to find out unsuccessfully what happened to the Roanoke colonists. They heard various rumors from Indians about light skinned people living to the south or that the Roanoke colonists had tried to settle in the Chesapeake Bay area but were killed by Indians, the Lumbee tribal history speaks of a few surviving colonists joining them, but nothing concrete has come from these stories then or now. It seems the exact fates of the Roanoke colonists is destined to remain a mystery, but there may be more history to be uncovered in the form of artifacts or possibly genetic research. One barrier to studying the Roanoke Colony itself is that no one knows exactly where it was. At one point, archaeologists thought they'd pinpointed the location, but it later turned out the artifacts they'd used to identify the spot dated later than the time of the colony, and likely were not associated with it at all. That's the location of the Fort Raleigh National Historic Site. Complicating matters is the fact that over the last 400 years, The barrier island of Roanoke has eroded and changed shape in the ocean tides. It's very possible that wherever the colony once was, it just might be underwater now. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.